Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts follows the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. Everybody there? In the first book... O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while, say, sorry, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we give attention to your word now, and we believe your words, and we have a hopeful expectation that you will fulfill your promises written in the pages of this book that we hold. God, may faith be the response of our hearts from hearing your words, because your word says that faith comes from hearing God's word. Your words mean everything. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's clear throughout the New Testament that the apostles, the disciples, had a, a hopeful expectation that Jesus was going to fulfill his promises and that he was going to come again. 
we refer to in the church as the, as the imminent return of Christ. This word imminent, it means it's likely to occur at any moment. Did you hear that, young ones? That Jesus promised that he would return. And the scripture teaches us that it is likely to occur at any moment. What does this mean to us? How does this affect our lives? Those two men, those angels that stood with the disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why are you staring off into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken into heaven shall return in the same way in which he went. My son Ezra um, has a very unique mind. Um, his mind is one that is very fixated on whatever it is that, that he wants or whatever it is that he's hopeful for to have in the future or whatever it is that he's working on. Um, we say that Ezra oftentimes is fixated. Um, Ezra, um, being homeschooled, has the, um, the privilege, we'll call it, of coming to work with me on a daily basis. Um, he comes to work with me in the morning, um, and it only takes him a couple hours in the afternoon to accomplish his schoolwork. But Ezra has been working, he's been working hard, and he has saved up um, for this expensive guitar that, that he wants. Um, and we just ordered it. Um, it's supposed to arrive on Tuesday. And let me tell you that that young man cannot think of anything else. That he is 100% fixated on that, that guitar. Um, he wants to check tracking on it 10 times a day. Dad, what, what time is it coming? When is it coming? Um, in like manner, the disciples, the apostles... Um, had this fixation upon the king's return. That Jesus promised that he would come back. And these, and these angels that, that said, men, why are you staring off into heaven? He will return in the same way that he went. They were fixated not only on Christ's return, but on the commission that Christ had given them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them to observe all things that Christ had commanded them, and he promised to be with them always, even to the end of the age. A hopeful expectation. Ezra waits with hopeful expectation that that guitar will be delivered on Tuesday. And in a much greater sense, we, as those who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because he has drawn us onto himself, wait with hopeful expectation every moment of every day, because Christ's return is imminent. Remember that word imminent? Likely to occur at any moment. You know, faith is a simple trust, a belief in God. Believing in things that we don't necessarily see with our eyes, 
but perceive in the spirit. Now, if faith is when we believe in God, then hope is when we expect him to fulfill his promises. I'll say it again. Faith is when we believe in God, but our hope is connected to an expectation that he is going to do what it is that he said he would do. We believe him. We trust in these promises. Paul tells the church at Rome in Romans 8.24, he says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's a theme throughout the New Testament of those apostles, those disciples, those that walked with Jesus of this hopeful expectation. Paul tells Titus that we are to be waiting for our blessed hope. Remember that word hope? The expectation of a coming good. We hope in God. He will fulfill his promises. We're waiting for our blessed hope. Notice this. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter says this. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening. In other words, what does that one mean? That there's a sense of urgency that would haste the day, that we're taking advantage of every moment that we have because Christ's return is near, even at the very door. It could, hope and, it could happen at any moment. The Apostle John would say this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John tells us to abide in him. What does this word abide mean? As all of you know, um, I'm a carpenter, a building contractor by trade. And there's particular wood glues um, and adhesives that, that we use. Where you take two pieces of wood with glue in between and you stick them together and you allow that adhesive or that glue to dry, and you try to separate those two pieces of wood, the glue doesn't break. The wood will splinter and tear apart. You'll tear apart both pieces of wood and destroy them before you separate the glue that holds them together. By God's grace, he has drawn us onto himself. And his Holy Spirit is that very glue that empowers us to abide in him and his words to abide in us. And the Apostle John encourages us here, little children, abide in him. Stay glued to Jesus so that when he appears, which could happen at any moment, that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And Paul would tell Timothy that there is a crown of righteousness for all 
who have loved Christ's appearing, for all that have longed for this appearing, that there's a crown of righteousness. What is this crown of righteousness? He is our righteousness. The scripture would say that God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. Christ is our very righteousness. This righteousness being imparted to us by his words abiding in us and us abiding in him is the reason why we can be confident that when he returns, that he will find us as those with our hands to the plow, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling and hard at work as his workmanship. The past three weeks, we have been going through an eschatology series. Eschatology, a big word, to describe the study of last things. The events that will occur before space, time, and matter as we know it come to an end. And kids know this. That everything that we know in this life, as I just mentioned, everything that has to do with the material or, or our flesh will pass away. This world will pass away. All of these things will eventually come to an end. And God's word actually has quite a bit to say about it. The Apostle Peter would say this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And those words, the day of the Lord. In the scripture, that's a reference to the end of all things or the beginning of the end. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Why is it that we took a month and dedicated it to eschatology, the study of end things? Why is it important? Because it strengthens our faith. As I prayed in the beginning, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Holy Spirit spoke these words through the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. If God so chose to provide us with intricate descriptions of events yet to occur so that we would wait for their fulfillment and hopeful expectation. This hopeful expectation should result in a practical preparedness for the current times in which we live and for the future times that we face. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1?
we're going to pick up in verse 13. I think that it's, uh, as we're turning there, that it's important not only that we hear God's word, we understand God's word, we study it, but also that we take the time as we study it together to open the book to these certain passages. So that maybe when we stand with an unbeliever that asks us for a reason of the hope that lies within us, some of us have a better memory than others and mine is fading quickly. But that I remember the book of Peter and I remember where it's at and I can turn there and I can point an unbeliever to the scripture, the very words of life. Picking up in verse 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, let your hope fully, wait, sorry, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, past, to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. Remember what Jesus said? He says, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Rather, fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. I say to you again, fear him. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. We want we want bought out of the slave market of sin with just mere silver or gold or a hundred dollar bill. But with the precious blood of Christ, he shed his own blood to purchase us as his own. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Powerful words from the Apostle Peter. Our approach to eschatology. Wisdom would teach us to maintain an objective approach. Again, objective, another big word that might, maybe not everybody understands. There's two words that you need to know. One is objective and the other is subjective. Two of many words you need to know, but in this particular context, objective means to consider all valid points of view 
to think about them and to consider that possibly I may very well not be right about everything. That God has given wisdom to other men that have different perspectives than that of mine. And I need to consider those perspectives. And then there's the word subjective, which is my opinion on things. My narrow-minded view that when I approach things subjectively, I'm not considering the wisdom of anyone else, but only my own. And subjectivity is seldom viewed and associated with being wise. There are solid teachers who subscribe to each of the views that have been covered the past month in our fellowship. There are aspects of each of these views that we can embrace and therefore prepare ourselves for these last days. As a recap, and to expound on these a little bit more, week one, Elder Mark Choma, in closing and in response to his teaching, encouraged us in four things. And he made them all easy to remember, but they all start with the letter W. And those four things were watch, work, wash, and worship. Watch, work, wash, and worship. And remember, these things he encouraged us in were in response to his teaching of the last days and what the scripture had to say about it. Mark shared with us Matthew 25, 13, where Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And Jesus said this within the context of the end of all things and his imminent return. That we are to be watchful, that we are to have our eyes open, that we're to be awake that we're to be ready, that we're to haste the day, to take advantage of every moment and to watch because no man knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return. Jesus said that he himself did not even know it, that the angels in heaven did not know, that only the Father knew. Mark encouraged us to work. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift of God. It is not of your own working. Oh, I have this memorized and for some reason I just got, I just got hung up. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a work of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our works, our expressions of goodness and the things that we do do not save us. 
but they're in response to Christ's saving work on the cross and the extension of his grace and the gift of his faith imparting his faith to us. The evidence that Christ is indeed present in our lives is that we will be working out our salvation in fear and trembling. And that works, our works, will be evidence that Christ indeed is present in our hearts and in our lives. Mark Choma encouraged us to wash. Please turn with me, 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up, pick up in verse 28. He says, And now, little children, you'll remember this verse from the beginning. And now, little children, abide in him. Stay glued to him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See or behold what kind of love that our Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. John would tell us in his gospel that for those who believe in Christ, that he's given us the right to be called the children of God. What right? What right do I have to be called a son of God? None and of myself, that is for certain. But I love the words that are chosen there. That it's Christ's righteousness is imparted to us we become heirs and joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ of his heavenly kingdom. How beautiful is that? He says, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, remember this, his imminent return. He's promised to return. We're looking forward to his return. That as we look forward to this return, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And notice this. And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who has this hope of Christ's imminent return, purifies himself as Christ is pure. 
And Mark encouraged us to worship. And he, like I, will say that I can do no better than what is expressed by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 11. Listen to these words. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In week two, Mark Merklinger's teaching, a bit more complicated. But Mark highlighted within his teaching the importance of biblical prophecy. Its fulfillment, both partial and complete. And he encouraged us to trust in the specificity of such prophecy and that we must not be quick to allegorize truths prophesized in God's word in an effort to fit such truths into our presuppositional view. That we should approach prophecy in faith, believing that God will indeed fulfill his promises. And a profound but simple truth is that oftentimes we don't understand prophecy until it's actually fulfilled. We don't understand the context of how this works. You read the book of Revelation and your mind is just blown, right? Fried. There's so much there, so much intricate description. How much of this should I take um, um, allegorically or metaphorically or figuratively? And how, how much of this should I take literally? Um, I think we should all just wait in hopeful expectation that Christ indeed is going to fulfill his promises. We can study these things. And studying these things causes us to look up. Peter tells us again in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets that when things come to pass, that you can then say, oh, that was prophecy fulfilled. And in Luke, Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Week three, Tim exhorted us to exercise the authority we have been given by God to further his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and to unashamedly proclaim this gospel into every institution of man. 
For Jesus said when he commissioned his disciples, all authority. I'll read that again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Four weeks ago, um, I shared a teaching centered around the first two times that Jesus had sent his disciples out. And the first he sent them out um, materially, physically ill-equipped. He sent them out with nothing because he was teaching them to be utterly dependent upon him. The second time, though, he says, now I send you out. The first time I sent you out, did you lack anything? They said, no, we didn't lack anything, Lord. He says, now I send you out with a money bag. I send you out with a knapsack. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Equip yourselves physically. Today, we're going to spend just a little time focusing on the third time that he sends them out. As we just read, he commissions them. This is referred to in the scripture, well, referred to by the church as the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, diligently, passionately to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The fields are ripe. For those of us who, what well, we all do, we live in this area. You drive through the country and you drive through the cornfields on both sides. And the corn is taller than me. And the ears are ready. And the harvest is ready. Jesus said that the harvest in this world, the harvest of men's souls, is plentiful. It's ready. But the laborers are few. He says to pray to him. To pray for laborers who will go into his harvest, that will labor, that will harvest these fields of the souls of men that are ripe. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, he says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And in Ephesians, Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Jesus says, pray for laborers to go into the harvest, for those to take this truth of God's word to a lost and dying world, to preach the good news of Christ, born, crucified, raised again by the power of God, to preach repentance, 
this kingdom being advanced by his power and for his glory. He often chooses means to accomplish this that are certainly not the means that I would choose. Means completely apart from the flesh. The frailty of our prayers and the foolishness of preaching. That is how he advances his kingdom. So Brother Tim exhorted us to exercise the authority that we have been given by the Lord Jesus to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, to baptize all in the name of the Lord Jesus, to teach them to observe all that he commanded. And he, while we were doing this very thing that he commanded, he had promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. As Tim shared this last week, I couldn't help but think of the cost of exercising Christ's authority. To exercise the authority that we've been given in Jesus, we must count the cost. Listen to what Paul told the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Anything that I have gained in this world is loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the immeasurable worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And those of us in this room that know him know what Paul is saying here, that there is nothing that this world can offer that can compare to the surpassing worth, the overwhelming worth of Christ and the satisfaction that he has poured into our hearts, the rest that has followed this great work of grace that he has poured into us. Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. This world will deceive you. Your heart will deceive you into thinking that there is something that exists in this realm that will satisfy the longings of your heart, but you are built with a need for God. And only Christ can meet that need by his Holy Spirit through salvation in our Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
You know, it's interesting that Jesus shares these words with his disciples immediately following his rebuke of Peter. As Peter attempted to rebuke him, Jesus said to his disciples, guys, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. Peter pulls him aside and says, no way, Lord. One of those swords you were talking about, I got it. I'll stand for you and I'll fight for you. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Far, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and he rebukes him. He says, you are a hindrance to me. Get thee behind me, Satan. And the words that follow, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you want to follow me? I'm going to the cross. You want to come after me? Take up your cross and follow me. And it's interesting that later it is recorded that Jesus prophesies of what death, what type death that Peter would encounter in this life. And I know that it is recognized within church history, and I don't know if it's from accurate historical documents or not, that Peter was crucified and that he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel as though he was worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord had died. That's not recorded in the scripture. But either way, what is recorded is that Jesus says, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and to go wherever you wanted. He says, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and another will carry you where you do not want to go. And John tells us that this, he said, to show what kind of death that he was to glorify God with. Matthew 24, Jesus, after being questioned about what will be the sign of his coming and what will be the signs of the end of all things, he says that, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Doesn't it appear as though in the times in which we live that the faith of many, that the faith of the masses is for sale? What is your cost to betray him? your job, your so-called church's 501c3 status, rejection by family, friends, co-workers. What is your cost to betray him? We know it was prophesied what Judas's cost would be, a mere 30 pieces of silver. And I say that I've betrayed him for far less. Thousands, possibly millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ have paid with their lives. They counted the cost because following Christ meant 
everything to them. Can I read something to you? Sure. This was written. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm wrapping this up. This is a four-minute read. And I hope you're as encouraged by these words as I was. This was written by a dear sister in our fellowship. And I don't know why, at this particular moment, why I'm getting emotional. <sighs> Thank you. Maybe laugh. Now it's gone. Here are these words. I'm requesting a religious exemption from the COVID-19 vaccine mandate based upon my genuine and sincere held Christian beliefs. I have been a practicing Christian for about 31 years. My husband and I have held home study groups throughout this time. He teaches and is an elder in the home church that we currently attend. My request is based on many years of study and devotion to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is based upon principles found in scripture and wisdom that the Lord provides his people through the Holy Spirit who indwells me. There is no thou shalt not take this vaccine nor that vaccine commandment, as vaccines did not exist at the time the scriptures were written. My request is based on biblical principle and wisdom which is given by God. The first principle is that we are called to be watchful and wise in a world governed by principalities and powers that seek to destroy the people of God. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 calls us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. To devour. Resist him firm in your faith. It is clear that the behaviors of our governing authorities as well as our healthcare systems have acted in ways that betray their very own codes of ethics and commitments to evidence-based practice. Governments are using this issue to persecute and to destroy the lives of those that choose, for a variety of reasons, to either wait for more evidence or to decline this still very experimental vaccine. Their outrageous and unethical behavior only further confirms my belief that there are agendas involved in this massive and brutal assault on human rights that have nothing to do with caring for the health of anyone. Their hypocrisy has been on display, occasions too numerous to name here. I sincerely believe that they are pawns of the enemy, intent on creating authoritarian power structures, not just here, but globally. We see this all, sorry, we see this already in existing countries, such as China, excuse me, North Korea, and now we see the beginnings of this in Australia, Europe, and here in the United States. John 15, 19 states, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I can come to no other conclusion as a Christian that the hate-filled rhetoric and the hate-filled policies of both government and healthcare directed in large part toward Christians has its origins in the defeated ruler of this world, Satan. 
Revelation 13, 16 describes that in these end times, there will be a global ruler, the beast, who is inhabited by Satan, who will demand that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. While what is happening may not be an actual mark of the beast, it is a precursor, setting up conditions for such a system. Consider who, knowing that, knowing what we know from history of the evil authoritarian powers that, that practice the very same things that our president has now mandated, would be cheering on such human rights violations. I cannot and will not be a part of this system. Another principle of my Christian faith is that I am not my own and my body is not my own, for I have been bought with a price which is the precious blood of Jesus Christ my Savior. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. As such, my belief is that my body is God's and that he alone is sovereign over it. Not New York State, not a health care system. By his sovereign mandate, he has given me rule over my body, and I have the responsibility of caring for it and making decisions as to what I allow to be put in it. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he has given me wisdom and the ability to discern truth that comes from God. The Christian faith is a rational faith. I believe in scientific principles because God is the author of science. Man, however has misrepresented science throughout history and during this last year and a half has utterly failed to maintain, maintain any degree of scientific integrity during this pandemic as well as acting in opposition to their own ethical principles of informed consent, choosing instead coercion. My decisions are based on sound reasoning and a thorough knowledge of scripture as well as a strong faith in the God who sustains me and who in his own perfect timing will take me home to be with him. Until then, I trust him above all others for my health and safety and every conceivable need that I have. Praise be to God, my creator and sustainer, and Jesus Christ, his son, my savior and king. Our dear sister, Lisa Choma's exemption letter that she had written. You notice anything about this? Certainly doesn't sound to me like a woman pleading for her job. Certainly doesn't sound to me like one of my brothers and sisters in Christ that I've seen bow to tyrants because they were afraid to count the cost. Lisa took the authority that she was given by the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel. And she presented the gospel to her superiors at work, knowing that it may very well cost her her job. And in the end, it did. It may appear as though that earthly authorities often win. Maybe if we've got our eyes set on the temporal. But if we turn our eyes and we set our eyes upon the eternal, as the scripture has commanded us to do, God is working for us an eternal weight 
of glory. Exercising Christ's authority may have cost Lisa her job, but what she gained was far greater. She kept the faith. She kept her convictions. She acted in the authority given to her by the Lord Jesus because her faith was not for sale. And she advanced God's kingdom by his power and for his glory through prayerfully seeking him and the presenting the sword of his word, God's sword, to a lost and dying world. Give me 60 seconds and I will wrap this up. We each have a choice to make. To choose between what's easy and what's right. Kids, you've heard between choosing between what's right and wrong. You need to choose between what's right and wrong. But I'll say to you today that we're faced with a choice daily to choose between what's easy and what's right. Because doing what's right is seldom that which is easy because it does not come naturally for us. Naturally, we are sinners. Our inclination is not to walk in the spirit. It's to disobey God and to live in rebellion. The path of least resistance is clearly the most compelling choice. Why? Because there's no resistance. There's no conflict. There's no pushback. There's no confrontation. No denial of self. A simple embracing of whatever I feel and whatever I feel makes me happy in that moment. Simply seek your own happiness. Oh, and by the way, never question, never challenge. Just keep your mouth shut and fall in line. I say to you, there is great joy to be found in picking the hard road, the narrow road, the one that requires great discipline, the one that requires denial of self. The easy road may give you temporary happiness, but the hard road, on that road, you'll find joy. As we follow Christ, as we take up our cross and follow him. My encouragement to you is to be watchful. To rest in hopeful expectation. For there to be an urgency about your life each day that Christ's return is imminent. That it could happen at any moment. And to live soberly. To be ready to watch, to wait. The scripture tells us to stay awake, to be alert, and to urgently prepare. And to exercise his authority on this earth that he has given to us, which most certainly will require accounting of the cost. And we may reach days in our lifetimes where it costs us everything. As that song says that we often sing, is he worthy? Father in heaven, with everything that is within us, we answer that question. You alone are worthy 
of any cost that we encounter in this life that costs us everything. You are more than worthy. We give you praise here this day. Glorify your name. Amen.